0: Good morning everybody. Today we are continuing in week three of our series on the New Testament letter of First Peter, which we've titled Nomads. So far in this series we've been looking at the reassurances that the Apostle Peter, who was one of Jesus' original twelve disciples, has been extending to the newly converted Christians in the non-Jewish provinces north of Judea. That last bit that I just walked really slowly through has been extremely important as so much of what Peter has had to say has risen up from the specific worries and concerns that his readers are facing. For Peter's audience, Christianity isn't something that emerges as this branch or sect of Judaism, which is mostly how this new faith of Christianity has been playing out in and around Jerusalem to the south, but instead it's it's shown up as something wholly new um, and something that is at odds not with a culturally monotheistic faith like Judaism, but a new religion that is at odds, at war with the polytheistic state religion of Rome. Peter's readers grew up in a pluralistic religious society, which is to say they grew up in a society where various religions interacted in culture and in the marketplace. But as far as dominance went, so they're growing up in this place where there's lots of religions, lots of temples around. uh, But as far as dominance went, the God that is in charge of the place where they live is the emperor of Rome. All of this would have meant that although individual people's spiritual mileage might vary, the landscape of the, of the place we're talking about likely is one that would have felt a bit like our own landscape, where religious convictions are mostly personal or familial. And in truth, it's the political culture that's kind of the king. So that's the people we're talking to, the place we're talking to, and it's a place that we can resonate with. And it is into this landscape, into this culture, that missionaries from Jerusalem came in the middle of the first century with stories about a Jewish man who worked miracles, who claimed to be the son of the one and only true God, and who was crucified by the same state that you are a subject of. And all of that is fine, but that's not catching your attention if you're living in these, these provinces at this time. It's this next part because they're also, these missionaries are also telling you that this guy who, crucified, who was crucified wildly and unexpectedly and convincingly came back from the dead. These missionaries that are visiting up from Jerusalem, these early Christian missionaries, it's hard to overstate how much the resurrection is just the absolute cornerstone of what it is they are sharing. That's the miracle that gives power and authority to their message and to all the rest of it, all the rest of that stuff that the average Galatian or the average Bithynian probably aren't going to care very much about a miracle-working Jewish man hundreds of miles to the south. We know, though, that the message of these missionaries was this, was simply this. Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead. Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead. And people don't usually do that. People don't have a long history of coming back from the dead. And so what happens is with that miracle, with that actual attention-getting claim, now we go back to all the stuff that Jesus talked about. You can imagine people kind of being, you know, who've been largely dismissive or bored by his ministry in some ways, kind of getting to the resurrection and being like, okay, like, what? all right, refresh me though. Like, what did he, what did he talk about again? And they go back and there are these sort of five basic things that, that, uh, that can, can ooh, what's the word I'm looking for, that are the basis of his ministry. The first is this. They remember that Jesus said there is actually a God whose reign is over all things, even Rome. There is a God whose reign is over all things, even Rome. The second thing is that that God loves justice, and he sides with those who are poor and persecuted and left out. Those are his people. Third, that God wants to bring healing and hope and restoration to the world. So he's the supreme God. He loves justice and sides with the marginalized. He wants to bring healing and hope and restoration. Fourth, the reason he wants to do all of that is not because he is angry which, to be fair, he is sometimes. But the reason he wants to do all that isn't because he's so angry with how human beings are. It's because he is wildly in love with his creation. That's why he wants to restore it. And then the fifth thing that Jesus taught is that that love of God is building a community of people from all walks of life, who can come together as his church, no matter where they live, and share the good news of the arrival of this new king in Jesus, who's going to bring God's kind of kingdom here to earth. Now, when the people who are now reading Peter's letter, when they first heard all of that from those missionaries years earlier before the letter's written, when they first heard all of that, something sparked within them and changed. They wanted to be a part of this church, of this movement, so much so that they left all they had They left their previous religious convictions, if they had any. They left their patterns of merchant and consumer and family life and followed in the ways of this man who rose from the dead. And that was good news, right? In exactly this way, a church was born. But where we're picking up months and years into the life of that church, these same Christians are now facing the cultural consequences of their decision. Those whose families didn't come along with this new faith have cut them off, they've lost their places in the market, the powers of Rome have decided that this new church is a threat to authority and they're arresting leaders and breaking up gatherings. Things are getting really hard for them, and these people, far from the centers of Christian life that might be stabilizing and anchoring, but which are down in the south or or out to the west, these people have started to feel displaced. They're on everybody's margins. And so the question is, where do they belong now? What good can they possibly do? And with this in mind, Peter, of all people, a man who actually knew Jesus, a man who saw Jesus die, and most importantly, a man who spoke to Jesus after Jesus rose from the dead, Peter, of all people, writes to them, and he says, First, you aren't at the margin. You're at the center of God's story. We talked about that two weeks ago. And second, your faith has made you free, which is what we talked about last week. And now, as we move forward into the second chapter of Peter's letter, Peter is going to expand on those two things even further. And here's the big thing he's going to say. He's going to say, you are free to be the new priests. Not me, not Kenny, pastor of revolution. You. You are priests. Specifically, he writes this. He says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You are new priests in a living temple who are going to take the story of Israel on the road so that every person everywhere has a chance to belong to that story like you do you are priests which means if you're reading this and you're a first century galatian who only recently became a follower of jesus and you grew up in this kind of quasi-religious and certainly not jewish community it means as you're reading this letter from peter of all people a guy you're supposed to listen to and he's saying you are Stones of a new temple, you are priests. Um, you're probably gonna listen while the letter's being read, but in the back of your mind, the wheels are gonna start turning because you're gonna realize you have homework to do, right? If, if this were happening now in the 21st century, I can imagine what we would all be doing while somebody's reading Peter's letter to us, we'd all be like slyly getting phones out of our pockets for a very quick Google, right? Like what is a Jewish priest? <laughs> And so, to be honest, imagining their need to answer this question, that is exactly what I did at the start of this week. I got out my phone and I Googled, what is a Jewish priest? And I got to tell you, even after 2,000 years and with all of the internet at my disposal, um, it wasn't very helpful. And I learned a lot, but I didn't learn much that clarified what in the world Peter is saying here. And... The reason is because the problem for us, like the problem for Peter's readers, is that the priesthood is the metaphor for who and what we are supposed to be, right? It's not a literal answer. And so looking for a metaphor, a fourth metaphor, kind of gets us too far from where we're trying to go. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a different approach. We're going to ask, what is Peter referring to as a Jew himself when he talks about the priesthood? What does that mean to him? What would he be thinking about in writing those words? And then, how can we, as people who've been grafted into the Jewish story, use what we discover in that process to better understand the new roles that we have been given? When when Peter refers to the priesthood, We know this first. We know that he would be specifically referring to the priesthood of Aaron, who's the brother of Moses, who is the inaugural figure in the religious systems and practices that God establishes with Moses after the Hebrews are delivered from slavery in Egypt. The Aaronic priesthood, as it would be known, begins in the wilderness, and its first duty is the maintenance of, of a thing called the tabernacle, which we've talked about before, but as a refresher, is this early and mobile version of what is ultimately going to become the temple. As folks who are ourselves part of a mobile church, I imagine like this is where we can get excited, right? Like the tabernacle is speaking our language, a mobile house of worship, got it. The tabernacle itself is this tent that is always set up at the center of camp where when the future Israelites were desert wanderers. So wherever they go, the tabernacle goes in the middle um, and it is the house of God among the people. And so the idea is that by being in the middle of their camp, it's always visible to folks no matter where they are resting. So that's kind of thing number one about the tabernacle, which is a metaphor for the church here, which means it's a metaphor for us is that it is this central house of god and then in that tabernacle in that central house the priest's next big job was to take charge of setting things up and doing tabernacle work so they would move the tabernacle they would stake it down put it all up put all the the decorations and ornaments in it and then they would operate the work of the tabernacle and there are three major components of that tabernacle work first they would officiate weekly and yearly festivals or celebrations like the Passover. Second, they would offer regular sacrifices on behalf of the people at the altar in order to manage the sins of the nation. So one, officiate, two, offer sacrifice, and then three, once a year, the high priest would go into the inner part of the tabernacle in order to intercede on behalf of the entire nation with God, whose dwelling place the tabernacle is. And so they officiated celebrations, they offered sacrifices, and they interceded for the people. So, you know, we've done enough sermons together, you and I, like mission accomplished, right? If we are priests, then it stands to reason that we're supposed to do all those things. So I'll spend the next 10 minutes talking out how how we do those three things. We officiate, we sacrifice, we intercede. And so as revolution moves towards relaunching our weekly services in a few weeks, um, we can make plans all around how we do those things well, right? We should set up a mobile church at the top of Main Street so that it's always visible to people in the city. That's kind of the highest and most central place. So we'll pop up a church there. Um, we're going to volunteer with the city to officiate all major holidays. Like So from now on, we'll, we'll take charge of running all of the city's holidays. Um, we'll do a bit of offering sacrifices, which is going to be new, but hey, it's the job. And then we also can promise to talk to God on people's behalf. So like, that's it, right? Done and done. Priests, that's us. Except, except, there's this other bit of good news in what Peter is writing that throws a wrench in the clarity of that plan, right? Back at the beginning of verse 4, Peter actually says this. He says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to quote the prophet Isaiah who says of the eventual Messiah, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him Will not be put to shame. All of this, both what Peter says and what he quotes from Isaiah, all of this means that the actual priest, the one that we are the simile for, the one we are like, the actual priest is Jesus. It's that guy that those missionaries from the South told us about. The one who came back from the dead the one who was the son of god he is the living cornerstone of the new temple he's the one we celebrate now he's the perfect sacrifice already offered and he's also the resurrected intercessor the one who intercedes between us and god which means that Jesus has taken all the priesthood work, right? We don't need to offer sacrifices up at the top of Main Street for anybody because Jesus's perfection makes his sacrifice this once and for all deal. We don't need to intercede for our neighbors because our neighbors Already have direct access to the living Jesus, just like we do, so they don't need us to be their go-between. they can go right to him. So that plan for a tabernacle church on Maine ends up being redundant. Jesus is the one who makes it unnecessary so So what then? right? We're new priests. But we worship Jesus who's taken all the priest jobs. And yet, here we still are, Peter says, new priests living like nomads, not at the center of our communities, but at the margins of it. If we're not here to do the priestly things that Moses taught Aaron to do, then what are we here for? And here's the other part of being a priest in the backstory. Of Israel. The priest's other job, beyond all the rituals, their other job was to model what it was to be set apart for the benefit of others. The priest's job was to model what it was to be set apart for the benefit of others. And this This, as it turns out, was central not just to how things worked at the tabernacle or later how they worked at the temple, it was central for the purpose that Israel itself existed to fulfill. In the Old Testament, God tells Israel over and over and over again that they are not just a people set apart for their own righteousness, for their own sin management the point of their relationship with God, the point of God designating them as his unique and chosen people wasn't just so that they could be like Noah, which is to say to be the only ones who survive some catastrophic, catastrophic flood that wipes out all of their wicked neighbors, which is how Israel so often conceives of itself, is that we've been set apart so that we can be saved while God judges everybody that's wicked around us. No, the point of their uniqueness, of their relationship, was always to show the world why it is good to be God's people. It was to give an example in a pluralistic and polytheistic cultural landscape, like the Galatians, like our own, of what it looks like to worship a God, not because if you don't worship Him, He has the power to destroy you. Think again about how those first century Galatians must have seen the Roman Emperor that they were told to bend the knee to, the Roman Emperor that they worshiped. Did they worship Him for any reason other than the fact that His soldiers were in their town to force them to? But. The God that Israel worships, the God that Israel has been chosen by, the God that Israel models a relationship with, is a God that we worship because He is radically in love with us, not because He's constantly threatening to wipe us all out. The priests of all people in Israel show the people of God that God can be depended upon. They show the people through those sacrifices that God forgives. That's what he does. They show the people that God is present at the center of our communities, even when it feels like our communities are lost and wandering. They show the people that God provides everything that we need. A side note here is that it's worth remembering that the priests were forbidden from raising livestock or growing crops to sustain themselves. All they needed and all they were given to survive was this small portion, what was called a tithe, which is why we still use that word sometimes, a tithe of what people brought in as offerings to God. And that was enough to sustain them. People's Decision to be faithful to God was the only means by which people who were born into the priesthood like, had food to eat or a place to live. So they modeled in their very existence what it was to be dependent upon God for all the things that you need, to be removed from any kind of rat race about the marketplace or trying to, to gain wealth on your own. And then if that's the role the priests serve inside the community of Israel to remind Israel of all of those things, Israel itself as a whole serves the same role in the ancient Near East. This wandering tribe of former slaves were preserved over and over again from destruction miraculously. They endured when there's no explanation for how they could. They are protected they're provided for even in the midst of 40 years of desert wandering and all of that was meant to show all of their neighbors that they worship a god who loves them they worship a god who has a plan for them and they are almost unique among all their neighbors in having rules and policies in place as a welco- as a nation i'm sorry that welcomed the sojourner and welcomed the alien and provided a pathway to citizenship within the nation for anybody who wanted to join them in worshiping that god more than their neighbors israel is an open community of adoption And so in these verses, Peter is writing to these new Christian communities living as exiles in their own homes, outsiders in their own marketplaces, nomads in the community. He's writing to them that as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. you are being built up into something and that something is intended to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you and this happens not for your own sake the temple isn't meant to focus inwardly only paying attention to how we can be more and more pure and holy which is how the church historically, how the church presently so often feels about itself, but the temple isn't meant to focus inwardly, focus exclusively on how holy we can be. What When it's working the way that God intends for it to work as this example to the nations, the temple's focus is outward on proclaiming how free and lovely and beautiful it is to be the recipients of God's love what is happening in us happens for the sake of others the purpose of the church and the purpose of its scattering of its fragmenting of its marginalization and culture is to set up new and living temples in every nook and cranny of our world the purpose is to share god's love and to invite others into experiencing that love not just at the top of main street but in the dead ends and alleys of every street in our city, the world might have pushed you out to try and silence you or hide you, but in pushing you out, you have ended up exactly where God wants you to be. So what does that mean for us as one of those scattered churches? It means, it means that being mobile as a church isn't a problem to overcome. It's a calling for us in this season. It means that trying out a new meeting day and a new meeting time, as we will be in a few weeks, is an opportunity to be different, to welcome folks in, who might not be used to being welcomed or to having another place or time or people to be a part of. It means standing alongside our church partners all around our city as allies and friends and co-laborers instead of seeing them as our competition. Can you imagine I'm going to rant about this just for a second because it is important to me. Can you imagine what kind of an example real partnership could be for our city? What kind of example it could be to our neighbors to have churches and think about, i we don't often do this, but like think about all of the cultural impressions and stereotypes about particularly evangelical churches right now. And ask yourself, what happens if the churches in this city aren't trying to outdo one another, aren't trying to out-attract one another, aren't trying to out-fundraise one another, or to out-influence one another, but actually exist alongside and for one another, no matter what, no matter their differences. Being priests in this new way that Peter is talking about means embodying difference by serving a God who loves and sacrifices for us and trying our best to echo Him by seeing and loving our neighbors with just wild abandon. And we get to do all this because this is the job that we have been called to. Just like the priest's israel just like jesus the highest priest of all we are freed as priests from worry and we're tasked with being god's people in the world in such a way that who god is shines through us i remember back when i first moved to maryland to teach high school english i had spent five years teaching at the college level i'd earned A doctorate and I had tattoos and I was coming to this mid-sized Christian school to work and let me tell you I was coming in ready to be cool and edgy I was gonna disrupt things I wasn't gonna be like every other teacher you have I was gonna be I'll just say it I was gonna be a little bit of a bad boy and for a while when I took that job I was I made a point of constantly separating what I was doing from what all your other teachers were doing. And I'm a bit embarrassed now, looking back on this, to say that this plan mostly worked. That in my first year, students tended to like my classes and I was pretty popular as a teacher. But before too long, I started to recognize some kind of troubling things. I started to notice that kids who were succeeding in my class were starting to do worse in their other classes than they were before. That students would come to me during lunch or after school to complain and to judge how all their other teachers were doing. And then of course, my colleagues didn't like this shtick very much either. I struggled to make friends and there was virtually no chance to build anything bigger than just an interesting and an edgy English class. One day, I remember another teacher confronted me about this pretty directly. We were talking about partnering on this project and she said, why would I collaborate on this with you if I know you're just going to spend every day telling your kids what I'm doing won't work. What I learned in my first year was that there is nothing really revolutionary about setting yourself up as a revolutionary. What's revolutionary is bringing whatever gifts or talents that you have to the table and laying them down so that other people can benefit from them. And God has always known this. It's why He always sends Israel right into the middle of their neighbors. It's why... He sent His Son right into the middle of all of our mess. And it's why He's sending His churches out into the world. God wants to show people that He loves them for their benefit. If we as a church seeking to re-anchor itself in this post-pandemic world, fixate only on what makes us cool or on what makes us different. We might attract some new folks for a while, but it will be toxic for other churches and it will be devastating for the Christian witness in Annapolis. But if instead, we live as God calls his priests to live, if we focus on how what God is doing here benefits others where they are, then we can be a small part of something much more wonderful than anything, truly than anything that we could build by being isolated or by being elitist. And so the big challenges today the big challenges are twofold. First, we need to set the right course for ourselves as a church. We aren't going to live all bottled up and self-obsessed like rebels and exiles. We are going to grow by pouring ourselves out for others. We're going to share what we have freely. We're going to lift other churches up. We're going to partner even when partnering feels Unfair or like we're putting in too much of the work. We're going to model selflessness institutionally as a church in a way that testifies to the generosity and love of the God we worship. That's the course that we're going to follow as a church community. And then, second, we need to commit to the right course for ourselves as individuals. And that means I need you to bring your gifts and talents to the table. I need you to step out and share your time and share your story with people. I need you to step in to help out at this church and to help out other churches and other ministries in our city. We have been bottled up for a long time. And as a result of that, you might not feel like you have any authority. You might not feel like you're holy enough. To volunteer or serve or share your story or give or connect with anybody or be an example or a mentor to anybody you might not feel like you're holy enough to do any of that stuff but remember the good news in what Peter is writing to us is that the sacrifice and intercession parts of the priesthood are things that have already been taken care of by Jesus we don't need to worry about sacrifice and intercession about those parts of the priesthood's role because it's done, which means that your availability to be used by God is a good enough place to start on its own. So we're gonna set the right course for ourselves as a church. We're gonna set a right course for ourselves as individuals. And the hope is that we can take revolutionary steps this summer in what we share and what we surrender And the prayer is that if we can do that, the promise is that if we can do that, then God can use us to tell a story about what it means to be His people in a way that can reach and include everyone. So pray with me for that. I'll pray for us now, and then we'll continue in worship. God thank you for who you are thank you for loving us first thank you for setting a people apart for yourself and then tasking those people with modeling your love to their neighbors God I pray for our church moving forward that we will serve and love radically that we will lift others up that we will lead by what we give and share. And God, just that you will bless the church in our city. God, thank you for what you have done in our lives and continue to do. Help us to see it in these moments sometimes where we struggle to. Help us to see your love in our lives so that it is all the easier for us to pour that back out. We are grateful, and I'm excited, God, about where you're going to take us, what you're going to do with this church next. We love you. In your son's name, amen.